This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Mike Brewer, Chief Economist at Resolution Foundation. Uh, you're very welcome, uh, those of you in the room and those of you online, to our event on rising rents and rebounding wages. Now, dedicated Resolution Foundation fans may have spotted that in the last 10 days we released a chunky report on how to solve all of Britain's economic problems. I'm contractually obliged to say this, by the way. Um, uh, with a series of recommendations covering what, the, what we should do over the next 30, uh, sorry, next 20 years to solve Britain's uh, stagnating economy. But as well as that really broad picture, we've also been focusing on some of the micro details of what's going on right now, continuing to look at more immediate concerns like the cost of living crisis. Uh, we've been very lucky to have support from the Health Foundation, who've allowed us to conduct three, uh, three large surveys over the last 12 months, uh, asking households uh, what's going on, how they're feeling, and what impact it's, it's having on them. So the political narrative right now, of course, is that the cost of living crisis is old news. The Chancellor and Prime Minister are both celebrating the fact that inflation is half the level that it was a year ago, and, and the government clearly wants to move on and talk about uh, something else. I think the question we're posing today is, is how much does that make sense? Um, what are families really experiencing right now? Um, energy may be cheaper than it was a year ago, uh, but food and housing you know, certainly are not. So to address those issues, we're going to hear from three people today. First of all, uh, my colleague Felicia, who's an economist at Resolution Foundation, who will uh, take you through the, our, our report that came out this morning. Um, then we will hear from uh, Anne Fairweather from Hargreaves Landown, and then Morgan Wilde from Citizens Advice. Uh, as ever, we want you to get involved, so you can go to Slido and use the tag cost of living to ask your question. You can, that's definitely the way that online people should interact with us. Those of you in the room, you can also use Slido uh, and we may have an actual physical microphone for, for, for your questions too. Uh, if you do tweet about us, then please use the same uh, hashtag, hashtag cost of living. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's all from me. We'll start by uh, hearing from Felicia, who is going to talk you through the key findings from this morning's research. Um, thank you, Mike. Um, I just wanted to start off by saying thank you to all my colleagues who have helped produce this report and to the Health Foundation for um, funding this research. So uh, let's get started. Oh, make sure my mic is in the right place. Um, so as Mike has said earlier, the, um, we've been in two years into the cost of living crisis and inflation has turned a corner. As you can see from the chart here. Um, and that means the Prime Minister can finally say he's met his target of halving inflation. So it's all good news, right? We can pack our bags, cost of living crisis over, we can do what we like. Mm, okay, well, not quite. Um, and politicians and central bankers risk um, sounding out of touch with people's experiences if they do say that. This is because even though the level of inflation has come down, prices are still really high and things are still getting expensive, just not as fast as they were before. And inflation is still double the rate of the Bank of England's target. So, yeah, the cost of living crisis isn't quite over. And in fact, when we decided to ask about 10,000 people um, back in October whether their situation now was better or worse than it was three months ago, we found, found about a third of people said that their situation was either a little bit worse or a lot worse. So you can see this from the chart here. We're essentially focusing on the red and the pink bars. So one in three people saying their situation was worse is a lot of people. Um, so that means for many people, the crisis definitely isn't over. And you can see that there's a range of different inequalities across this, um, but we're not going to go into that now. We'll speak about inequalities, inequalities a little bit later. So in our quest to find out more about people's lived experiences, we decided to compare our survey results um, this October to previous waves of the survey that we conducted back in March of this year and October or November last year. Um, what we found was interesting, so let me break this down for you. Starting off here, this chart basically shows um, the proportion of respondents um, reporting their inability to afford essential items from a range of things from regular savings of £10 a month 
or things like being able to afford their heating. And what we found in our survey results this year, um, I mean in this October survey, um, was that about a um, one-fifth of people weren't able to afford regular savings or turn on the heating when they needed to. And when we compare these results to our previous two waves wave of the survey, which is the green and the red bars, we find that there hasn't been that much of a difference. Yes, there's been a slight improvement, however, it's not that different. And then when we decide to look further back, let's say to about 2019, 2020, which is the light blue bars, we see that the position now is much worse than it was back then. There are still many families who are faring worse than in the pandemic years. And so the, in, the impacts aren't equally distributed across everyone. We've taken a, a look at some um, specific groups. And what we found is that people from ethnic minority backgrounds and those from disability backgrounds were more likely um, to be faring worse. We go into more detail on this in the report. However, this just gives you a flavor of what we found. And this chart here is showing um, focused on disabilities. And it's basically showing the gap between people who are disabled and people who are non-disabled reporting um, um, how they're faring on different outcomes. So a more positive number, if you're looking at the, um, the bottom axis, means experiences are more common amongst people who have disabilities. So we're seeing people with disabilities faring worse on things like food bank use, worse mental health, food insecurity, etc. So there is a disproportionate impact on different groups. However, averages don't tell the full story. And in order to understand the cost of living crisis and how it's evolved to where we are now, we really need to look beneath the averages and unpack the different variations in, pe in people's experiences when it comes to pay, when it comes to housing costs, um, to really understand what's happening. And this matters, especially at this stage of the crisis, because variation is much larger than it usually would be. So whereas the cost of living crisis started before, where the focus was on energy, then it moved to food, um, which affected and impacted everyone more or less kind of the same, as the same shock to everyone, it's now evolved towards housing costs. Um, and that's different for everyone, which means the variation is going to be bigger. So it does make a big difference if you are a mortgager or you're a renter, but it also makes a big difference if you've seen a pay rise or if you haven't, or if your pay increase has been a pay rise of, let's say, 1% or 10%. So we've looked into this, and I'm going to show you how these individual circumstances determine how people are affected in this state of the cost of living crisis, starting off with pay. So what we found is that, or what we know, is that wages are rising much faster than usual. Um, but that doesn't mean everyone has um, experienced a pay increase. Um, in fact, what we found was about two-fifths of people had experienced a pay increase. Um, and what's happening to pay really matters because pay determines living standards, pay um, determines how you're able to deal with the cost of living crisis, but it's also important for many households and many families' largest single household expense, which is housing costs, which I'm going to go on to now. So overall, we found something similar, which is about two-thirds of, two-fifths of adults had seen their housing costs increase. And this chart basically shows um, what those increases looked across, look like across different tenures. Um, adding up the red and the pink bars, we found that actually renters were more likely to see their housing costs increase than mortgages. And this is most likely because many mortgages are shielded or somewhat protected by being locked into fixed rate um, mortgage deals, which renters don't have the luxury of enjoying. But when we look back, let's say, to more normal times, how does this compare? So when we look back to around um, 2018, 2019, before the pandemic, what we find is that it was less likely for people to see their housing costs increase than it is now. But it doesn't just matter about whether or not your housing costs have increased. What matters is also if, how much your housing costs have increased by. So what this chart here shows is the typical year-on-year -year housing cost increase for those who have seen their housing costs rise. On the whole, people have seen big changes if their housing costs has increased. Um, more generally, it's about 14%. And we spot really interesting trends across different groups. So one interesting trend that we've, we've identified is that while mortgages were less likely than renters to have seen their housing costs increase, they had seen their housing costs increase by more if they had 
experience that. Another interesting finding is the age um, distribution. We found that younger people were more likely to see higher typical rises in their housing costs. And then when we come to income, we see that those in the highest income um, groups had seen um, high, the highest rises in their housing costs. And this is likely to do because this is likely to be because people in this income group are more, more likely to be mortgages. So we've spoken about pay and we've spoken about housing costs, but what really matters is about how the two intersect in, when it comes to people's individual circumstances. The combination of the two and how they vary um, in individuals' lives really matters for their experience of the cost of living crisis. We've tried to identify these different groups, which I'm going to show you now. So this chart basically breaks down um, people's experiences based on whether they've seen their housing costs increase or and whether they're in work, their pay is frozen or their pay is up, identified by the purple, amber and green bars. And what we found, just focusing on the green bar, is that almost one in five people have seen that their housing costs are up and their pay is up also. But we've spoken about pay being increased, pay up, um, and people who are in the labour market, it's important to remember that there is a few people who aren't in the labour market, they're not in work entirely, and this is what this chart shows. We found that the people who are most likely to not be in work are concentrated amongst social renters, those on benefits, and the lower income groups. Another interesting trend that we, we found when we're looking at these different intersections and different combinations across groups is that across age, younger people were more likely to see their housing costs increase um, when compared to the older groups. And this is more likely because older working age adults are more likely to own outright and therefore likely to fa face less of the increases. Um, but also another interesting finding is that the younger, younger adult groups were also more likely to see their pay increase as their housing costs increase. So these combinations are really interesting and they do matter for outcomes which I'm about to show you now. This chart essentially shows um, how people reported their financial situation had changed or um, what they were worried about or whether they were behind on any bills um, as shown by these three charts. And so the two key messages to take from this. One, those who haven't seen their housing costs increase were in a much better position than those who had seen their housing costs increase. But then, when we look specifically at the group of people who have seen their housing costs increase, it was those people who were either out of work or haven't seen their pay increase that reported the worst um, outcomes when it comes to these three indicators. So overall, if you've not seen a corresponding pay increase as your housing costs have gone up, you're more likely to be faring worse. So what can we take away from everything that we've just seen or the main messages from our report? Well, one, it's a really good thing that inflation is falling, but we shouldn't be fooling ourselves into thinking that the cost of living crisis is over. And if um, the politicians and the bankers want to say that this is the case, they risk sounding out of touch with real world experience on the ground. Two, the cost of living crisis is having disproportionate impacts on some people, um, especially those from ethnic minority groups uh, with disabilities, etc. And then finally, understanding the variation in circumstances when it comes to the cost of living crisis is really important, especially at this phase, um, because it really determines people's outcomes um, and how they will cope with everything that's going on. But that's all for now. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Felicia. And um, Anne, over to you. Anne Fairweather from Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hi, thank you. Um, hi, I'm Anne. I'm Head of Government Affairs at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Um, we're an investment and savings platform uh, with 1.8 million clients. Um, and you may wonder why I'm sat here. Um, and that's because sort of as we were coming out of the pandemic, we were quite interested to understand how financial resilience of different households have been hit by the pandemic. Um, and so we worked with Oxford Economics to pull together a savings and resilience barometer um, that we first published in January 21 and we do every six months moving forward. Um, and so it has a baseline of 2019 from before the pandemic. And what we saw is actually across all groups um, during the pandemic, financial resilience rose. 
but it's this point around looking below the averages is so important in the current circumstances. <coughs> so we're able to pull out different groups now looking forward. Um, so the data is based on the Wealth and Assets Survey data sets and data from the Financial Lives Survey, and we use economic modelling to pull that forward. Um, but we were also keen to look at resilience really in the round. So first of all, it's at a household level, um, and that's because actually most families will budget together. So sometimes, for example, savings data can say these people have no savings, but actually they might be in a household that has a greater amount of savings, so to capture that. Um, secondly, we look across debt, protections, savings, um, planning for later life, as well as investment. So to try and understand, and those are sort of the five things, if you went to a financial advisor, that's exactly what they'd be looking at. So trying to see those things in the round as a whole. Um, so I think sort of one of the things, and we, we're just getting a new report out in January um, next year, but I think from our report in July, I think it was really clear that the government's support um, around energy prices had supported some of that lowest quintile. Um, but renters were absolutely in, in a worse hit position. And, and in terms of groups who had unsustainable spending, no assets and debt, they came out very strongly in our research. Um, so I think that's sort of a real focus that we'll be looking through in our report in January. Um, we also did a really in-depth piece of work around mortgages and people coming off fixed rate mortgages. Um, we hadn't put that into our model originally, so we'd included that into our model because obviously it suddenly became very relevant. Um, there, I think, when we're looking at people who are spending more than 25% of their income on their mortgage, um, that's where people in London and the South East are most strongly hit. Um, so in London, I think that's around 38% we were modelling. Let me just see. I, I've bought all the graphs with me on my phone, so, <laughs> so it's really helpful. But yeah, like it, it moved from 31% in quarter two of 2020, uh, sorry, 2022 through to 38.5% in, um, in Q4 this year we were modelling. And that was seven points ahead of the north of the southeast. But by contrast, those figures are only 10 and 11.3% in the northeast. So the, the problem with mortgages is very specific to certain parts of the country because how much equity in your house is obviously really important consideration in those mortgage costs and how badly hit people are by that interest rate directly relates to quite how much um, you know, they're over-leveraging on their mortgage. Um, secondly, we found that Gen X were the most squeezed generation. And then the really big factor is whether people are in a single household or, um, you know, have more than one earner in the household. So we found that uh, single households were three times more likely to be at high risk than those in couple households. And high risk we defined as people with uh, over 25% of their income going on their mortgage. And they had less than three months at savings for their essential spend. We found that they were five times more likely to be at critical risk. So that's people who actually already have unsustainable levels of spending. So their outcoming outgoings are higher than their sort of incomings. So it's, it's a reasonably narrow group and uh, one that I fall into. So if anybody wants to marry me to solve me for my predicament, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, will, I will solve my financial resilience issues. But. I think it is important to remember that ultimately it is renters that are actually much, much more vulnerable because they, they have much lower levels of savings, much higher, uh, more likely to, to have more immediate debt issues. And, and that's what we'll be bringing out in the report in January. Um, just another thing I wanted to raise as well is, is the impact of this current crisis actually on the longer term. So in our later life pillar, we look not just at pension savings, but also other assets. So there, renters are typically less resilient in later life, but the current crisis obviously has a bigger hit on homeowners because their asset prices are, are falling within their home. So I think that's, that's something to sort of consider about longer term impacts. Um, and the other thing I just really wanted to bring out is we did an analysis in our July report around employment. So it's, you know, it's not rocket science. Everybody knows if you're in full-time employment, you're more likely to be more resilient than if you're part-time or self-employed. 
But we really wanted to explore a public versus private sector as well, because obviously typically wages have been held back in the public sector, but longer term benefits such as pensions are more generous. But the real divide actually is between people who work for smaller companies versus larger companies overall. So there we found um, that if you work for an SME, if, you, you're very, if you're going to have poor, very poor resilience, that's 27% of people, compared to just 12% in the private sector, larger employers, and 14% in the public. Likewise, those that have great resilience, it's only at 27.5% for those who work for small businesses versus 42.1%, uh, I think. I uh, can't quite read my writing there. In the private sector, 42% uh, in the public sector. So you're actually seeing no real difference when you look at resilience in the round if you're working for a larger employer. And the real difference there is if you're working for a smaller employer. And that's sort of some of the work we've done off the back of this has been, so we're based in Bristol, so we set up uh, something called a Financial Resilience Action Group with 19 employers. And we wanted to see how we could share our knowledge and information from Hargreaves Lansdowne with a wider set of our community. But something that's really noticeable when we're talking to smaller employers there is quite often they want to do the right thing, but they're not expert in this stuff either. So they don't know whether 8% is a great pension or not. Um, we've been talking to them around sort of signposting debt advice. Quite often they want to help their colleagues. Um, they're very aware of sort of mental health impacts and money worries. So things like, well, these are the people to signpost to. Simple initiatives like correcting payroll errors within a week to, to help people stop falling into problem debt. These are the interventions all employers can make. Um, but we've also been talking to them about protections because I think quite often people don't realise it's relatively cheap to buy things like sickness uh, insurance to be able to top up beyond the statutory minimum. And actually quite a lot of employers are more keen to keep people within their workforce longer term. And, and initiatives like that actually, and showing people how you even access this kind of insurance, I think can make a real difference. Um, so for me, I think looking forward, one of the really sort of big interventions for future government should be looking around that. Um, and probably the final thing I just wanted to mention, coming forward in our report in January, we look at where that resilience hit, where it's come from, and the vast majority of it comes from that short-term savings, the rainy day savings pillar. So I think as we're coming out of this cost of living crisis, there needs to be a big focus on making sure people are building up their short-term resilience, as well as answering questions about the longer term around pensions and the like. And I think that question really needs to start to be looked in, at in the round. Great, thank you, for, thank you very much, Anne. Thank you clap. We're, we're very happy for speakers to promote their own reports. I think it's the first time a speaker's <laughs> promoted their own availability on the marriage market. But that's, <laughs> that's, that's fine as well. Desperate times, desperate times. Um, thank you. Um, Morgan, I mean, you, you work for an organisation that represents people very much at the sharp end of this. So what, what, what are you seeing at the moment? What yeah, so um, let me just take off by congratulating Felicia and the team on uh, a really, really interesting report. And uh, the, I think it's so timely to look at this from the perspective of variation uh, in different people's experiences and to dig, uh, I think as you said quite powerfully, dig below the averages to find the real story. And what I'm going to say, I suspect so there's going to be lots of furious agreements on the panel about the analysis of the situation. Um, but just to start off by saying I, what we see at Citizens Advice really echoes uh, what Felicity has outlined in the research that the Resolution Foundation has done. So. Um, I'm from Citizens Advice. We are the largest advice charity in the country. Uh, we provide about two million people a year with one-to-one -one, uh, advice, about 30 million odd on the website. Um, and we've been around a long time, so 84 years. We were founded in the outset of World War II to help with the evacuation plans um, uh, at uh, the beginning of the war, and we've been around ever since trying to help people in their communities find a way forward. I thought 2022 was going to be the year of the cost of living crisis, and you know, in our conversation about these things, it was the, the year of the cost of living crisis. We broke pretty much every record in the book for from 
people coming to us because they couldn't afford to top up their prepayment meter. We saw more people in 2022 than we saw in the previous 10 years combined. Um, we saw record numbers of people coming to us for food bank voucher referrals. In general, record after record of crisis, and you think, all right, that is the worst year we've got on record. It can't uh, get any worse, but it has steadily got busier and, and busier over the course of 2023. So lots of the conversations moved on. I think people have got a bit bored of the topic. There's not uh, too many new angles that you can spin on the tragedies happening in lots of uh, low-income households and people's lives. Um, but it's still, I think as Felicia showed in that um, analysis, it's still at the forefront of lots of people's experience. If you look at any polling, it's still either number one or number two issue um, for people up and down the country, number two being the NHS. So I think it is still the central challenge. Um, one of the things we do is Death advice, so probably one of the organisations your, your colleagues uh, refer to. And people come into us for death advice, usually with a big uh, sheaf of bills um, that they have fallen behind on um, and need help working out. They um, sit down with us, we go through this really hard, really really powerful exercise with them to try and help them make sense of what income they've got coming in, what income they could increase, what expenditure they've got going out, really going through it with a fine tooth comb with them, see if there's any way to cut that back. Um, and then seeing what's left over so that they can start agreeing with their creditors a repayment plan so that they can get out of debt. Used to be that we helped about um, over 70% of people in that situation get into a positive budget where their essential spending was lower than the income that they have coming in. Now it's about 50%. So about 50% of the people, we go through that extremely taxing exercise and we just can't make their sums add up. The thing that makes that worse is that now on average, expenditure, essential expenditure, things that people are actually paying, exceeds um, income. But if you look at, um, if you apply the rate of inflation um, on people's expenditure to see what a basket of goods would have been uh, in, say, 2019 versus now, um, what you really see is a massive, massive cutback in consumption to go alongside uh, that struggle uh, to keep up with spending. So you see massive cutbacks in people's spending on food, massive cutbacks in people's spending on groceries, massive cutbacks in transport. The one thing you don't see cutbacks in is housing. Um, and there's an obvious reason for that, because you can eat less, you can heat your home less, but you can't consume half a house. Um, and that is what is leading to one of the biggest facts in our data at the moment, which is we are now uh, helping a record number of people facing homelessness. So for the people who are coming to us, their rents are going through the roof. Um, they aren't necessarily getting enough points to move up the housing register and get access to social housing because our supply of social housing is incredibly squeezed. Um, the council often have a homelessness duty for them, but it won't mean that they stay in the same local area. They'll probably have to move with their kids to somewhere in Kent or um, some other part of the southeast uh, that um, if they're in London, uh, there won't be the properties for them. Um, and that's the real constraint that we have at the moment. The fact that it has now moved into a housing crisis means that people's strategic response is really difficult. You can't, um, you can starve yourself, you can stop heating your home, you can't do anything about your housing situation. So I think we've got that twin effect now 
Um, the traditional cost of living crisis hasn't gone away. Food, rent, transport, still very expensive. But the crushing vice is now really housing. And I think our failure to tackle that over successive decades is now really starting to bite. Great. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Morgan. Um, well, thank you. Thank you to our speakers. And just to try to now it's time for the, the discussion and your, your chance to get involved. Um, what, what I want to do is to break up the next half hour or so into three bits. I think we've heard uh, an important theme about variation uh, in, in impacts. I mean, I, I think as the, as the crisis has evolved from being one initially about energy and food, which affects everybody, now it's more towards housing costs, which doesn't necessarily affect everyone equally. It's more, it's more important than ever to understand that variation. So we'll, we'll touch on that. And then I want to talk a little bit about the, the unequal impacts and, and perhaps the, the, the extent the extent to which the cost of living crisis is hitting the same group as were also suffered in the pandemic. Um, and, then, and then towards the end, we'll, we'll, we'll look ahead to 2024 and maybe test the panel on what they think might, might be uh, in, in the news or vexing politicians uh, next year. Um, you can get involved, uh, go to Slido and use the code cost of living, um, as did one of our listeners already. Uh, Matt Gardner has posted a question, I think, which re gets really well at the, uh, at the variation. Um, so um, Matt, who works for which, is saying that their organisation has picked up this idea that there are, that, that, that for some people, the crisis is deepening, um, but for others, it's, uh, it, you know, they're, they're finding things getting easier and easier. I mean, that was that was one of the things we really wanted to look at in our in our report. It was it was sort of there on Felicia's second slide. I don't know if we've got the ability to show Felicia's second slide, but if not, I'll I'll tell you what was in it, which was which was figure five in the report. And when, so when we asked people directly, you know, how do you feel? How is your financial how is your financial situation now compared to three months ago? Felicia highlighted that about a third of people said it was worse now than three months ago. Uh, but there were also about 15 uh, to 20 percent who said it was better than three months ago. And if you look who, who was saying that, it was very much skewed towards the high income households. So, yes, high income families, autumn of this year, much more likely to say things are getting better than what than were low income households. So, um, so, so that's going on. I mean, indeed, and sort of more generally, we, we did wonder whether you know, we, we, as, we did, as we did this research, we were wondering whether we might find things are getting worse now than they were a year ago, or getting better, with kind of things pushing in either direction. The fact that inflation is falling suggests that pressures might be easing, but as uh, our speakers have highlighted, the, the fact that a cost of living crisis has been going on for so long means that something's accumulating, and particularly uh, we, we might see that in, in, in debt um, and, and problem bills. So I think, yes, I mean, Matt has got at the, got at the real essence. I mean, it, Anne or Morgan or anything you want to add on on that one? I was just going to say on certainly on inflation and um, sort of the variable impacts of it. So obviously, you know, the analysis we've done and it's fairly commonly known, you know, food is a much greater proportion of a low income household's budget. And also the scope for people at, at that level to trade down as well is, is, is also much, much more difficult. So we sort of explored that in a bit more depth, actually, in our report in July. But I think that's why you're seeing these multiple sort of impacts on certain households. Um, the other thing I, I meant to draw out um, in, in the discussion earlier, which I think is a really important consideration, is around whether people have children or not as well. And, and so single parent households are always so, so strongly hit. And I'm always struck that actually, yes, there's a benefit system and the like, but there's, it's very clear that that kind of grouping needs, needs more support than they're getting currently. Uh, yes, that's definitely true. Um, we have a, something coming out next week looking particularly at large families who, of course, will be, will be hit by the benefit cap and two-child limit, but they yeah. do seem to be, large families are suffering, you know, struggling much more than, than, um, than, than other, other household types. Yeah. Morgan, you're going to Yes, uh, so, I mean, I think this really hits on the direct point. I think we are seeing both. So that cut back to essential spending, but also a rising tide in debt. Over the past year, past 18 months, that rising tide has been overwhelmingly uh, a rising tide of energy debts. Uh, so people just falling back behind on uh, their energy bills. That led to the crisis last winter of um, companies increasingly forcibly installing prepayment meters uh, into people's homes to uh, effectively cut them off uh, from supply. Ofgem 
clamp down on that, but, and there has now introduced some new rules, um, but it's still a going concern, right? Like, there is a lot of bad debt in the energy sector, um, and we are effectively socialising the cost of that debt, uh, rather than investing in things like social tariffs, which would be an effective way uh, to introduce some structure and some reason into um, the problem of people not being able to afford their energy bills. The other areas, we've seen a slow return to pre-pandemic levels for other types of household debt, so things like council tax, things like um, water bills, uh, all that kind of traditional household debts, but we haven't seen the explosion that we've seen in energy, and if anything, it's returned to pre-pandemic norms. The big caveat there is that there is still a lot of pandemic bad debts in the system, from DWP overpayments, from council tax, um, and when and if councils and government departments start applying the squeeze on those debts, I think we're going to see a big, big problem. So I think there's still that kind of lurking pandemic debt that we haven't really gripped and will come through the system at some point. Okay, thank you. Um, so sticking with the variation, I mean, the key point in our report is, the, is, is housing costs. The way that housing costs affect people is, is very varied, depending on your tenure type and depending on the where you are in your mortgage um, mortgage um, repayment cycle, um, a, a, a question asked by, um, by anonymous or sort of is, is really drawing attention to this. Um, but of course, the, the, the point is, if, if you have a mortgage, um, you, you are going you, you're going to be hit at the point where where you have to where you come off your fixed rate uh, if you've got a fixed rate mortgage or or immediately. So it's a it's a very staggered um, way in which which you're hit. Um, so I mean, Felicia, you described you described that at one point you were describing that mortgages were were partially protected, but of course, ultimately, if you have a mortgage, you are going to be paying uh, a, you know a higher can be facing higher interest rates. There were some great great facts in our report where we looked at the age differences amongst mortgages. Can you talk us through those? Um, so when we were looking um, at the different differences amongst the age group amongst mortgages in particular, what we found is that younger mortgages were most likely to be impacted by the higher interest rates when we compare to um, low, um, older adults who were mortgages as well. And I think this essentially speaks to the fact that younger mortgages are mo most likely to have taken a mortgage out recently and therefore impacted by the higher interest rates compared to maybe older mortgages who had taken their mortgages out before and um, were lucky enough to um, enjoy the benefits of lower rates. Um, and yeah, I do think this is a, it is a ticking time bomb. And it does, how, how it um, plays out is still yet to be seen, whether interest rates will come down at some point, we don't know. But um, yeah, it's still, it's still playing out. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, I had the ability of knowing what I was going to ask you, so I can turn to the right part of our report. So figure 23 shows that uh, younger adults whose mortgage has gone up reporting a 28% increase in their, in their housing costs compared to 21% for all mortgages. So that's... Um, yeah, that's big. Um, and the Bank of England statistics are that just over a million households will be expected to come off their fixed rate deal next year. And on average, they will see their mortgage payments rise by just under £3,000 £3, a year. But I mean, Anne, you were talking in your remarks about the, the, the mortgages being an issue right now and again and also the variation yeah so the sort of the research we published in July was estimating by sort of the quarter two of next year 470,000 households would be in that critical risk group so with payments over 25% of their net income for the household um, with without that buffer of savings and with greater outgoings than what's coming in so that's quite a significant number of people um, that ultimately, obviously, there are different measures that have been put in place, such as being able to extend your mortgage term, being able to take mortgage holidays. So there are ways in which this can be managed. It's not that all of those people are going to fall into homelessness, you know, and, and obviously if you do have equity in your property, you have still got something to work with there. But there are a lot of people who will be making very difficult decisions over the coming year. Morgan. Uh, yeah. 
put a provocation on that. And so um, people who come to Citizens Advice who are mortgage holders tend to be in two categories. One is that they've had an awful life event, um, which means they can uh, no longer keep up with the payments that um, they once could. The other is they are very poor and might be the kind of people who are eligible for support for mortgage interest or something like that. Um, the kind of toy model I have in my head of this is twofold. Like one is illustrated by Felicia's chart that like mostly this is falling on higher quintiles of incomes overall and that's the, you know, if we're going to affect um, inflation by higher interest rates that feels like a distributionally okay way of uh, it happening with some rough uh, justice along the way. Um, the number of people who expect to be in serious mortgage distress, like how much do you think that like we have addressed it through post-financial crash regulation? Like has that done the job and we will now we'll see a lot of tragedies for a lot of mortgage holders, but we don't need to worry about the risk as much as we might have done. Well, I mean, obviously, affordability uh, checks are are more stringent yeah. than they were pre-crisis. Um, I do think, though, they are they're take, made at the point when the mortgage is taken out, not several years down the line, yeah. where you yeah. might have had another child, for instance, your circumstances may have changed. Um, so I don't think that's a silver bullet in and of itself. Yeah. I think the point is, if you have a mortgage, you do have some asset there. Yeah. And so you do have more places to go than if you're renting. Um, and you don't have any asset behind you and the like. So, and I think the, the position the banks have taken, and certainly I think there were stats out just the other week on repossession rates going up, mm -hmm. but ultimately there are a number of measures in place to make sure that people are given other options yeah. like extending the term. <laughs> so it is, it is potentially manageable, yeah. um, but I, I do think there's that concentration as well geographically in the country mm -hmm. um, where as we all know, housing costs are so much higher in London and the South East, yeah. and, and that's a problem for renters, but it's also a problem for mortgage holders as well. Mm. Um, I think when you're talking about higher quintiles, I think it's also worth bearing in mind some of those people in the higher quintiles of income also have potentially paid off quite a lot of their mortgage already. Yeah. So yeah. a very big hike in your interest rate when you've only got 20% of your equity <laughs> left to pay off yeah. isn't necessarily the biggest issue. Yes. So I think it comes back to you, yeah. and I think that's where your it's research shows on, on younger mortgage holders. Mm. So I think that the impact is more concentrated on certain groups, yeah. and, and some of those groups will be higher earning, but will also have very significant yeah. housing costs. Yes. Um, so Yeah, my entire peer group is peer group is constantly furious because they're in that bracket of people who are early on in their mortgage, have straight the asset yeah. at the top of the market and um, are now facing crippling rates of funds. Potentially the I, I group we don't want to care uh, about. this month, so January. I'm just pretending. <laughs> I'm ignoring it. January yeah. of this. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. And of course we do we do recognise, we, we publish research regularly showing that um, across all tenure types, uh, yeah, well obviously owner outright, so that, that was house costs, but mortgages in general face lower housing costs as a fraction of income than renters, so I don't want to, I don't want to overdo, overdo the point that mortgages are being hammered, but, but it is definitely the, you know, the case that for those people, particularly early on, if, if they've bought a house kind of fairly, fairly recently, will be facing significant rises in, in their mortgage costs, which will, will not, yeah, it's not, it's not the case for everyone. Um, just yeah, I think it's also worth thinking then that, that obviously takes money out of the economy as well as it goes into debt. So I think there's sort of a broader impact as well mm. to consider yeah. of, of those rates. And that's obviously, you know, part of the strategy in terms of cooling the economy. Um, yeah. But it is, you know, the work, the work of bringing down inflation falls on a relatively small set of people. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and then the other aspect, we, look, we looked at housing costs, we also looked a little bit in our report at earnings. Um, there, there was a question, which I can't find now, where somebody was asking about whether we knew what, what, what sort of pay rises people were having. I mean, Felicia, you showed, showed us the chart on the average pay growth, which, is, which has been robust. But we, we asked people directly in our survey you know, how much their pay had gone up by over the last year and, com and compared that to inflation. And it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's fairly, fairly... Um, reassuring reading uh, it's not the case that people are having uh, 
you know, miserly pay rises. So the, the aggregate statistics are, do tend to be um, do tend to be matched by people's people's own experience. What exactly did we find again? It, it was find the, the no, chart. I think it, I think it was that one. Yes. This chart in particular. Yeah, we definitely found that um, people are more likely to have had a pay rise, um, twice as likely to have had a pay rise as not a pay rise. Yeah. Um, and where they were reporting pay rises, they did tend to be greater than greater than the rate yeah. of inflation right now. And then we, look, we looked a little bit at how that broke down by, by age and income. And again, it's re reasonably, reasonably reassuring, for the, at least for those people who are in the labour market. Yeah, so it's fairly equal across different distributions, actually. So when we look across age, um, we found that there wasn't that much of a difference, especially, and especially when we looked across um, the income quintiles as well, um, which is reassuring to see that yeah. this what's happening on pay is quite evenly dis distributed across different groups. It's just a little bit more common among younger workers. And, and we'll do a big shout out for a very important government policy, which is the national minimum wage and national living wage. When we asked people, we asked people why they thought they'd had a pay rise, or what had led their employees to give them a pay rise. Was it cost of living pressure? Was it you know, the, the uh, tight labour market? Was it to try and retain workers? And you can really see the importance of the national living wage for workers towards the bottom of the income distribution. Um, but let, I mean, let's let's go on to the sort of second thing I wanted to touch on, which was the unequal uh, impacts. Um, there are a couple of, of questions here, which I think I'll, I'll just um, read out. So somebody had somebody asked whether we whether we looked at the differences between men and women and women, and whether the crisis um, and we did we did look at that, and it didn't feature in our report because there actually weren't that many differences on average be between between men and women. Um, women were slightly more likely to report worse mental health than men. Uh, men were slightly more likely to report worse outcomes on most of the. Financial uh, financial measures. Um, so in our report, instead, we did we probed. Um, it, we said we looked at the differences between those with and without disabilities, and uh, for people from different ethnic groups. Um, and, and somebody has asked online whether those differences between those with and without disabilities, you know, whether we know what's going on there, and, and do that do they go away if we, we control for other characteristics? And actually, we do have a box in the report. This is um, box two, which actually looks at the unequal impacts after we do control for key characteristics. Um, that's um, age, employment, and family type. And what we found is after we can control for this, that the differences do remain, especially when it comes to disabilities. So it means that there's things that um, cannot be explained by employment, age, family, um, that's taking effect into why people with disability are reporting worse on these kind of different indicators and outcomes. Thank you. And I think, Morgan, you, you, your organisation has talked, spoken a lot about the... Yeah. I mean, that would echo exactly what we see. And that is, I mean, it's basically for structural reasons, right? Yeah. That um, if you are disabled, then the disability benefit system has for large parts the past couple of years been on its knees. Uh, the speed of processing for personal independence payment, the speed of getting work capability assessments if you are um, unable to work, um, has really ground to a halt. It's improved recently, but still you're not talking a kind of Rolls-Royce service, you are going to be facing months and months of delay potentially for a initial decision to be made. And then if you are uh, unlucky enough to have to go through the delightful appeals process, then you've got mandatory reconsideration, you've got tribunal, um, all facing a substantial proportion of people who are trying to access the benefits. So I think there's no there's no big mystery here. There's just a structural problem with how uh, we provide people access to disability benefits. The other thing I'd like to just say on the point of inequalities is I think we have revealed conclusively, the ONS has revealed conclusively, that inflation has been higher for poorer households. So if you look at the uh, past two years in particular, that has been a difference of about 4% uh, over that period. Um, and the implication of that is, well, you know, in all our kind of real wage statistics, they should end up poorer than uh, they look. Um, and for policy, uh, that means that even though the Chancellor has intended to increase benefits in line with inflation, because he's used the wrong inflation measure, um, 
he hasn't succeeded in doing so. So I think part of the story here is a real mismatch between how we've captured poor households' experiences and how that's translated into policy. Thank you. It's very nice when our speakers uh, spontaneously bring up things which are also covered in our report, which yes. at least didn't get a chance to talk about. But we, <laughs> we do indeed have a chart on that in our report. It's a very good chart. I mean, the, the, the nuance, of course, is that you know, as, I mean, I think as you probably know, um, Morgan, as you were here earlier this mm. week talking about differential mm. inflation with the RSS, that in the very most, in the most recent data, as the inflation pressure from energy has, has gone away and food is going, it is actually mm. the case now, right now, very late that the inflation rate for yeah. rich and poor households is the same. Mm -hmm. But of course, that doesn't undo the last two years exactly. where the inflation yes. rate was much higher for low-income households and high-income households. Um, but that's, a, that's a very good point. Uh, I, I'm going to come to, the, to the, the live audience in a minute to see if they've got any questions. So this is your, your two-minute warning. But, I mean, I'll, but on, on, sticking on the topic of unequal impacts, I just wanted to probe uh, or to think about the extent to which the cost of living crisis has, has followed on from the pandemic and, and, and you know, the extent to which it was the, the, the same or different households um, being, being affected. I mean, and you want to start? I mean, we did particularly, we, 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 know, we know a great deal about what happened, what happened to saving in debt through the pandemic, yeah. right, don't we? I mean, the fact is there were a lot of government interventions during mm. the pandemic, and so most households were supported and resilience grew at that point. But I think it was, I think, last year that we saw there was just a very clear split, 50-50, on the income distribution. The bottom 50% were suddenly below where they were pre-pandemic, mm. and the top 50% were still well above. And so I think that's where this split coming out of the pandemic, and we've got some great graphs in our report mm -hmm. coming up, where there's, there's sort of like one quarter between pandemic and cost of living crisis coming in, where a lot of the graphs start to go like this and then <laughs> move again. So it's it's really plain. It's It's been a very unusual time, absolutely. And I think some of the insecurity actually also potentially comes because whilst people were potentially more financially secure in the pandemic, obviously the world around us was quite insecure, right? So people had that feeling of insecurity. We hadn't really got back to normality. And then suddenly there's a whole new set of challenges hitting. So I think that's quite a lot for people just to absorb in terms of, you know, just managing your household and trying to keep things normal. And, and then, you know, you're already entering that cost of living crisis with 50% of people already back below where they were and then being hit harder. Yeah. Yeah. Our experience of the pandemic was like basically the re response from government was a masterclass in how to respond to a crisis like that in the narrow uh, field of <laughs> providing social protection, not commenting on the overall response to the pandemic. But for social protection, like the people who put together the uh, job retention scheme, £20 uplift to universal credits, uh, repegging local housing allowance to the 30th percentile, working with the FCA to put the rights protection measures in place for mortgage holidays and credit card holidays. It was, those people deserve to feel a lot of pride in what they achieved for uh, people in this country. And it is yeah, a masterclass in how to identify the nature of a problem and respond to it. That did not follow through in the subsequent cost of living crisis where we just had a very unstrategic approach of random bits of money here. Oh, well, that's not enough. Um, the first attempt of like giving everybody council tax band A to D, um, a couple of hundred quid, um, that hasn't gone far enough, right, some means-tested uh, support, some more means-tested support, oh, that's still not enough, we need to do an energy price guarantee, uh, all the while if they've kind of taken the energy or behind the job retention scheme and used it to solve some quite knotty problems um, to target energy support, we could have ended up in a much, much better place than we did both fiscally and in terms of the people we helped. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I mean yeah, I mean, Andy, I agree with everything you said. The, 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 on average, in the pandemic, households did tend to build up their financial resilience. But even then, of course, there was a distributional skew to it. It was particularly the 
it was it was the higher income households who saved the most money because they couldn't yeah. they, they, they weren't going on holidays well, and going out um, exactly high yeah. discretionary spend which they weren't doing so they were the ones saving the most and, and we indeed and our research showed that some low income households in the pandemic saw costs go up because of um, a reduction in sort of face to face services. Um, Right, so time for the, those in the room to ask anything, if they would like. Uh, we do have a microphone, yes, the, uh, the, the lady uh, there with glasses. Hi, I'm Valentine Mulholland from the Oak Foundation. Um, just bringing you back to the private rented problem, and I think that, that pressure that, as you were saying, people can't do very much about. And I just wondered whether any of you have views on what, you know, what we need as policy solutions to that, really. Um, I'll start with Morgan on this one. I'll come, I'll so, come, all, come to all the speakers. Yeah, I mean, I basically think we have <clears throat> three overlapping problems. Uh, one is uh, scarcity uh, at the bottom end of the markets. One is overall affordability. And one is the general crapness of most, well, I say most, a lot of landlords in their provision of housing services. On uh, one, so somebody who comes to us uh, where they um, are facing homelessness and have a duty from the local council to um, find housing, the only solution to that in the short term is finding more social housing so that more people can stay where they are when they're facing an emergency and um, continue living in their communities. I, can, I can't see another solution that isn't an expansion of social housing so we don't have the intensely rigorous and frankly dehumanising rationing system that people have to go through at the moment. Affordability, I mean, like, I just you know, don't see any other uh, option than like massively increasing our housing supply. Like one of the reasons that people have such a crap experience of the private sector is because landlords control their supply and therefore have very little incentive uh, to um, do the kind of repairs or energy efficiency improvements or maintaining the quality of their housing stock that we would like them to do. Finally, I think for that problem of like basically crap landlords, I think the um, you know the biggest thing in our data is I mean at the moment it's rent increases, but usually it's just like landlords not doing basic jobs of um, doing repairs, doing their uh, legal responsibilities because a lot of them are in the asset sweating business and the speculation business rather than the provision of housing services business. The key policy intervention there is ending section 21. Most people do not want to assert their legal rights in a housing uh, context because they fear that they will be uh, in receipt of a section 21 no fault eviction. You asked for somebody to do some repairs, your landlord says, ah, can't be asked for this tenant, and evicts you. That problem is lessened if you increase the supply because you don't care as much about your landlord um, not doing repairs because you can go elsewhere. Um, but certainly in the immediate term, we've got to fix regulation and get the renters reform bill through. Yeah. And do you want anything to add? Housing isn't our speciality, but um, I think a lot of these questions boil down to build more houses, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which has mm. been a refrain for quite some time. And, and, and Felicia, we, we, we must, we we must recognise, of course, that in the uh, autumn statement, the government did do a major, a major policy intervention to help with, with, with uh, rent affordability mm. um, by putting up local housing allowance back to the 30th uh, percentile, which is, you know, which is, so, uh, as well as indexing benefits to inflation. As we thought he might not, he did also increase um, LHA rates. That's definitely going to help. Yeah, that's definitely going to help um, people, especially those at the lower end of the income distribution. Um, so it's definitely a welcome measure. But I do echo the thoughts of like Morgan and Anne in terms of like um, the longer term solution is to build mm. more homes, build more affordable housing um, to release some of the pressure on this current housing crisis. Thank you very much. Okay, let's let's look, let's try to look forward to next year, and we'll uh, we'll we'll start by 
bringing up the poll and seeing what you, you lot all think. I'm afraid those of you in the room can only do this online, unfortunately. Um, so, I mean, yeah, as I said at the beginning, it's clear the government would prefer to stop talking about cost of living crisis now. I mean, I'm not sure what they are, do want to talk about, but it's, not, it's definitely not the cost of living. Um, it's pretty clear the panel, and, and, and we think that the, the cost of living is not, crisis is not over. Um, yeah, what, the, the poll for you at home or you in the room, what do we think is most likely to prolong the cost of living crisis through 2024? Um, is it stick inflation? We're all celebrating inflation's been halved. It's still, as we said, twice, twice the Bank of England's usual target. Is it the uh, ongoing rise in housing costs with, 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 with both mortgage, you know, mortgage um, uh, renewals continuing for the next few years? Is, is it lower pay growth? We saw yesterday, early this week, the pay growth seems to be weakening. Um, uh, GDP may, may be faltering, or is it the debt overhang? Or indeed, are you an optimist? Um, so please, please, um, please, please put your vote in. Um, When's the election? Well, well <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed, yes. I thought you were coming up with a prediction there. Oh, we've got the answers already. Oh, that was very quick. I was, well, well, we'll leave the answers up while we ask our panel. Um, I mean, Morgan, what... what well, I mean, first of all, Morgan, do, I mean, do, did you agree with my perception that politicians do seem to have stopped talking about this? And, 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 and then, and then what, what do you think is going to be the problem that persists through 2024? Yeah, so I think politicians have stopped talking about this, but they're going to start talking about it again because it is going to carry on ranking as uh, voters' uh, top or near-top concern. And if uh, voting voters' priorities and an incoming election have any disciplining factor on politicians, um, then they are going to have to have a compelling offer for what they are going to do to fix this both in the short term and uh, for some of the longer term interventions. What, like, I've been very doom-mongery, this uh, panel. Like One moment of hope is we're about to go through an incredibly tough winter where the welcome things that were announced at the autumn statements won't be in place yet. We tend to have really bad beginnings to the year at Citizens Advice. So January, February, March are usually our busiest and worst years. Then April comes and it's usually the kind of pathetic small cavalry of government policy um, where we see big uh, increases to minimum wage, increase to benefits and I think like the big thing that makes me hopeful is that restoring LHA to the 30th percentile is targeted in a way that reaches the people w that we see who are worst affected at the moment. So that's my kind of message of hope. And we always see this in the data that policy has an effect. It's not just us sitting around chatting about charts and numbers. Uh, we see fewer people when um, good policies come in. Um, so um, that's my point of hope. But I don't expect it to go away because the long-term uh, problems of unsustainably high housing costs, a new level of uh, energy costs that we don't expect to go away anytime soon. But that kind of pincer movement is just going to be in place for the foreseeable future and any government is going to need to fix those underlying problems. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And what do you think is going to be the issue next year? Um, so in terms of cost of living, um, I say this more with my government affairs hat on than the analysis we've been doing, but I think if you look at the scale of economic sort of impacts in the last couple of years, I think it'd be very unusual for that not to show through in a general election year as a number one issue for people. And I think the, the insecurity and the chopping and changing of, of what is a set of problems I've got to deal with as an individual um, has, has put people much more on the back foot. So I think that, that is likely to continue. Um, obviously, we're here today discussing housing costs. And I think, yeah, that's, that's obviously the thing that is going up most strongly at the moment. So I sort of agree with the people responding there. But um, I think in terms of whether it's all over or not, um, it's, it's, it's more about whether people feel that it's all over. It's not just about technically, you're probably, you know, there's probably enough voters out there who are in a better position, so therefore it's going to be okay. 
um, it's, it's actually it's, it's about that wider insecurity, I, I would imagine. Um, but entirely unscientifically uh, <laughs> made comment. <laughs> yes, the ever-elusive feel-good factor. And it's very, I mean, interesting reading about what's going on in the United States where people are, people are pointing to this big difference between all the economic indicators, which look fantastic, and how people in America feel financially, which is very much, di very much different. Um, Felicia, what do you think are going to be the, the key issue next year for the cost of living? Um, I'm kind of biased because I just did a report that focuses on housing. But um, also, I agree with what most people have selected in this, which is higher housing costs. I think this is because, I guess, like, just echoing Morgan's point, people can cut back on food, people can cut back on shopping and spending, but you really can't consume half of a house. Like, and the options in order to, you know, cut back on housing are very limited. You either have to move somewhere or, um, and if, if you're a renter, especially, and you decide to move, you're facing really, really high um, price increases in um, new tenancies that we've seen this in the ONS data as well. So higher housing costs. And then the last one I want to make is because the solution to this is a long-term solution. We just haven't seen what we need in order to relieve the housing crisis at the moment. So I definitely think that's going to carry through to 2024. One caveat is um, we all know older people vote more and they're more mm -hmm. likely to have a mortgage that's paid off, so they won't be experiencing higher housing costs. Yeah. So that's it's always important yeah. to factor that in. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Felicia and Anne. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps swayed by the answers to the poll, which is sort of staring at on the screen. <laughs> Six, uh, two, nearly two thirds we say it's higher housing costs. There's, there's obviously nobody from number 10 watching this because no one has ticked the it'll all be fine in time for the election um, option. Um, I mean, Deborah, that's a good point, of course, for for, for me, to, me to remind you that we we, we do indeed, we, we do publish our own income forecasts, um, and you know with our latest forecast for how disposable incomes will change next year is, is is not a good one. It's basically no growth with falls in income at the, towards the bottom of the distribution as the cost of living payments disappear. Maybe some slight growth at the top of the distribution. Uh, partly helped by higher interest rates, um, but but then the, the, the even bigger picture is this: this is look like to be look, looks likely to be the worst Parliament ever for household for household living standards. Um, gosh, that was a gloomy note to end it on, wasn't it? But I think we're, I think we all draw it to a close there. Um, so thank you enormously to uh, you guys for listening, uh, whether you're at home or in the room, and uh, to to our speakers. We'll just give them a quick round of applause. Thank you all. We'll see you at the next Resolution Foundation event. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.